I don't know what you get from our lead pastor coming back with that much energy and that much firepower, but it's sort of like, why didn't you leave before? <laughs> I mean, that, that is amazing. We just had the sermon. We just had the takeaways. Um, when I think about being in a congregation in a family of Christ followers with leaders like Scott and Olivia Mitchell and Olivia, I think that, that's what it means to follow Jesus. That, that example is what it means to go deeper and that's what, why we ought to be here, to go deeper in Jesus. And they're not just leading by lip service, they're leading by example, amen? I don't know if you were as surprised as I was on Thursday when you flipped the calendar and realized, oh my goodness, it's September. <laughs> what happened to the summer? Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're long since um, past launching kids into school, but it seems like our culture, still the rhythm of life is summer happens and then you get into something more routine when school happens. All of us, even grandparents, when school happens and the rhythms of life kind of get, get, get normal, but the rhythms are different. Summer rhythms are different than fall rhythms. The activities are different. The priorities are different. It reminded me of a lesson that I learned many years ago, and it was a, oddly the difference between process and content, and the importance of being able to pay attention to both, both in life and, believe it or not, in Bible study, which we'll look at here in a few minutes with John 17. I was in a seminary that required a counseling class and a practicum for the, the particular degree. And I was um, a little bit of fear and trepidation. I wasn't sure what that was all about, but we were learning biblical counseling and then we had to get actual people who needed counseling and under the, the supervision of the professor in the case where we were, which had a church that had a counseling ministry under the supervision of a pastor. And so I had a couple um, who'd been married actually longer than we had, my wife and I had had at that time, and, and felt really unqualified to ha help them at all, um, very limited in my skill set. And after four or five sessions, I was, I was just stuck. I didn't know what more to do with them, even with all the great teaching that we were getting about particular appro approaches. And what, it, what the crux of it was, was they kept coming back to the same argument. It, it was years old and, and they knew how to push each other's buttons and they kept coming back to this same argument. And no matter how I tried to approach it to help them to see that this wasn't healthy, I, I, we weren't getting anywhere. And in the practicum session where the students meet with the professor, I was telling him about, telling him about my stuckness. I, I, I didn't know where to go with this. And he said something in a, in a really almost offhanded way um, that stuck with me so significantly that I was realized how universally applicable this is for all of life. And he said, you always have to pay attention to process and content. Where are you at in the process? What triggers the particular argument in the course of the day or the week? Process and content. And I thought, how how appropriate that was. And as we started to zoom out and rather than going deep in and zoom out from the content and look a little bit more of the process, we started to have some breakthroughs. 
And that has been a universal part of how I've approached much of life and even work and ministry of look at the process like summer is different than fall. The activities and priorities of summers, the process of summer are different than fall. And if you get them confused, you're going to be confused. You're going to go, why can't I go on vacation next week? Well, I can't actually because I'm retired, but <laughs> wait a minute. The kids are in school. That's not what we do. It's a different rhythm, a different priority. And so I want to bring this idea of process and content into Bible study and show you a little bit of where we've been leading up to getting back into John and, and particularly this wonderful high priestly prayer in John 17. And so I want to call you, let's go ahead and have that, that first slide. I want to ask you to stand and we're going to read from John 17 and then we're going to go all the way back and do a high speed pass up to where, uh, where we are in John 17. And throughout the slides you're going to see this morning, I've got yellow highlighter, my my attempt to suggest that's a process statement and then bolded letters, words, phrases that to me are content statements and you have to pay, to ten, pay attention to both of them or you can't make sense out of the passage. So let's read from John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before, with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. And I'm going to do something, I, I, a, a bit of a caveat. I, did, I do have a degree from Bible college, and I did graduate from seminary, but I've never been a pastor, and I've never preached regularly. Um, it was more of, of because I love God's word, and my career was in the, in the Air Force, in the United States Air Force, for 30 years. For 20 of those years, I was a logistics officer and a military planner. And for the last 10 years or so, I've been in leadership and organizational development. So those are the lenses that I tend to see things with through and, and sort of the stories and the background of life experience. And so that, that, that just comes out. Like I'm going to say to you right now, we're going to do a high-speed pass through 16 chapters of John. So fasten your seatbelt. You're going you're to be pulling some G's here. And uh, I hope nobody loses their breakfast. I'm going to give you the bottom line up front. Next slide, please. From John 17. And again, part of why I chose to do it this way is look at the bolded, highlighted words. Excuse me, go, go back. I did say that. Look at the bold, highlighted words. John 17 becomes a summary of sorts in this great high priestly prayer of all that Jesus has done for particular reasons we'll get into in, in a few seconds. And, um, and so the takeaways, go ahead and go to that next slide, are these three. God's glory is the point of the story. A new eternal kind of life is possible only because Christ did what he did. He accomplished, he, he finished the work the Father gave him to do. Jesus, as the incarnate Son of God, the incarnate 
God-man, through his life and mission accomplishment, didn't, didn't end something, he began something, a new kingdom. And then Jesus' followers have a reciprocal mission to accomplish until he comes. I know that's four, not three. I'll talk about that later. <laughs> so process and content. How did we get here in John? Go ahead and go to the next slide, please. We launched into this book study all the way back in September of 2021, and we were grateful. My wife and I just started coming in July of that year, and it was, it was fun to be a part of a church family right at the beginning of a book study. And we, we went, we've been through these three themes, come and see, come and believe, come and follow. And we're going to introduce today the next theme of experience and enter. Next slide. The, one of the first things that we saw in John's opening words in the beginning is, is this echo of Genesis 1-1. John 1-1 echoes Genesis 1-1. And we see this theme that, that John begins with. That there's, there's an attempt to uh, show us the new creation that Jesus is all about. That there's the reverse of the curse of Eden and the desire to create a realm of God's rule for a new people under a new king, Jesus, who, who invites us all to receive and enter, and, by, by, and he actually gives us the right or the authority to become his own children. And so in the Come and See series, we saw, first of all, that John invites us to come and see what he saw, which is amazing in and of itself that he was able to see the word made flesh. He was able to see Jesus. And, and he expresses this as we've seen his glory, even in the course of his walking his life, short of his death and resurrection, we've seen his glory, the manifestation of who he is. Jesus himself invites his followers. You remember that John the baptizer, who said that he must eat, decrease and Jesus must increase, sees Jesus walking and says, behold the Lamb of God. Two of, two of John's disciples start to follow Jesus. And he turns around, looks at him and says, what are, you, what are you looking for? Or what are you seeking? And they ask where he's staying, which was more like, um, we want to know you. We want to follow you. We want to understand and, and commit ourselves to you. Not so much disloyalty to John, but amazing attraction to this person of Jesus. And Jesus says, come and see. And then even the first disciples, Philip says to a cynical Nathaniel, um, can, who, who had just said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, hearing that Jesus was from Nazareth, and says, come and see. Come and, and, and you're invited in. And then this amazing story in, in John chapter four, the, the Samaritan woman at the well a uh, marginalized woman of a marginalized tribe and people group at the well in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to be ostracized by her peers and has this amazing conversation with Jesus. And she runs back to her village and says, come and see, the whole village, come and see. A man who told me all I ever did, can this be the Christ? Can this be the Christ? Next slide. And then in the come and believe, by the way, believe is used 48 times, a really important word in John. We see, sorry, got my notes mixed up. 
we see sorry <laughs> we see this at the end of at the end of the gospel that John says the very purpose of his book was that that you may believe that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And one of the things, that we're in this almost post-Christian understanding of who Jesus is. We have, to, we have to remember that this is much more, John's saying much more than this is deity, this is the Son of God. This is the one that we've been talking about, in, in, John would say, in all of Israel, in all of the Old Testament, in all of our history, this is the one, it culminates in him, in this person, because it's the perfect plan of God that this is the way he would receive glory. And then back to John 5, even obstinate Jewish leaders are challenged in their belief, and it's like their ego, their own narcissism, their own, their own failure is blocking their ability to believe. And then um, the, the healing of the man born blind in John 9, which really starts to ratchet up the tension between Jesus and the rulers that eventually is going to lead to his death. But this interesting expression where at the end, after he heals the man born blind, at the very end of the chapter, he has a, a dialogue. The man had been cast out of the synagogue because the Pharisees didn't understand what was going on. And there's this, um, analogy or metaphor about the blindness of the blind man that was being healed and the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees who couldn't see what was right in front of them. And then immediately following that conversation, next, next slide, right in the same context is this amazing story and, and, and analogy of the good shepherd. Jesus as the good shepherd. And, and a good shepherd leads and manages his sheep in a particular way. And, and shepherding in, in all of scripture becomes an illustration both for good and bad leadership. And Jesus says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd comes that they might have life and have it more abundantly. The good shepherd actually willingly lays down his life because he has that authority to do so. And at the very end, he says, they hear my voice. Again, a second time, they hear my voice and they follow me and I give to them eternal life. And then at, at the end of that section of, of John 10, um, we, we understand more and more that choosing to follow Jesus means division. It means a big choice. It means you're going to be ostracized just like the blind man was kicked out of the synagogue. There, it's really a life choice to follow Jesus, much like it is in our culture. The hostility of our culture to all things Christian is very much like the, the day in which um, the, John lived and experienced this. And so the, the, um, the tension is building, and the, right at the end of that, that whole dialogue about the Good Shepherd, comes this, this comment that Jesus makes that I and the Father are one. And the Jews hear that as heresy and they pick up stones to kill him and somehow he escapes the crowd. In chapter 11, it's ratcheted up even more. The death of Lazarus, 
who, who, who Jesus said he died so that God may be glorified. Jesus raises him from the dead. The Pharisees and the religious leaders do not like that at all. And that's the beginning of the plot to arrest and kill Jesus. So really ratcheted it up in John 12, six days before Passover, we see Mary of Bethany anoint Jesus, another woman with incredible insight into what was about to happen. One, one writer said, she cast a shadow, a foreshadowing over all the events are to come. She anoints Jesus for burial and none of that has even happened yet. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem in chapter 12, and then this trigger event where Greeks come to see Jesus and of all the time for him to say, my hour has come. Four times before that, he said, my hour has not yet come. And something in this Greeks coming to see Jesus, he says, my hour has come. And then it's like the events just accelerate. And so here in John, next slide, brings us to the immediate, the immediate context for the, the high priestly prayer of John 17. And that's the beginning of what's known as the upper room discourse or the final discourse in John chapter 13. And I thought how fitting it was that John begins this section of his writing with this verse, with these words. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. John the apostle is known as the apostle of love and 48 times and just in his gospel, he uses the word and expression of love. And, and I, I particularly appreciate this from a leadership perspective that Jesus knows what's gonna happen to him, but they don't. And so he's, he's willing to invest a whole evening and, and talk way into the night with deep conversation about what's about ready to happen and the meaning that it has in all of the big picture and, 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 and positive and yet tragedy so that they could understand when he's gone what it really means. And in this scene of the upper room, they have the, they have the meal and Jesus takes his posture of leadership in contrast to the Gentiles who would lord it over and look down. He takes the posture of leadership, kneeling and looking up and saying, leaders take the lowest place because leaders come to serve. They don't come to be served. He tells them that one of them is going to betray him and that stirs up a conversation as you can imagine. He dismisses Judas, the betrayer, and then even more intimate conversation. He foretells Peter's denial and then gives them a new commandment. And most significantly, he instructs them about the importance of the Holy Spirit and that if, if he doesn't leave, the Holy Spirit can't come and you need the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit is our, spirit is our indwelling teacher and your guide and you need, you need the Holy Spirit to come. And so we've come, next slide, we come back to where we started. Hopefully you didn't lose your breakfast. And here we are in John 17, and I'll just touch briefly on, on a few things. Scott will clean it up next week and tell you more about his, his sabbatical, I'm sure, and, and weave um, 
more about this incredible prayer. But as hopefully you've seen in the process highlighting and the content highlighting, that much of this prayer that I'm just talking first five verses is really an iteration or reiteration of the themes that, that John has laid out in the course of his gospel. And the importance of that is this, in an oral culture, they remember what is said. In an oral culture, they will remember Jesus's words and the repetition of the ideas. And so when Jesus prays, he's, he's, he's helping embed in them um, and, and almost codifying the principles and ideas that he's expecting them to instill and to, and to lead into and to flow from as he leaves, as he, as he steps off the stage and, and completes his mission. So let me make two quick process observations and two quick content observations and tell you a story, land the plane. The, the first process observation is when Jesus had spoken these words, which, which is not just a way to get into the text, it really has significant meaning, kind of like when you see Paul say, and therefore, you're supposed to pivot back and say, oh, okay, what were the words that he just said? Well, in the, in the immediate context, going back to the beginning of the evening, it's what, what we just looked at in John 13, but in John 13, 1, at the beginning of Passover, Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end, but that was probably like six hours before this, before Jesus begins this prayer. So when he had spoken those words, but then in the immediate context, they would have remembered these words. At the very end of chapter 16, he challenges their belief and says, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming indeed and has come when you will be scattered each to your own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you that, it may, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Wait a minute. How have you overcome the world? You, you're just talking. And even in the, the tone of the prayers, it's, it's, it's as if everything is accomplished. He still has the cross to go through. He still has to be dead and buried. He knows what's going to happen, but they don't know what's going to happen. And he says this in all the uplifted tone of a positive leader to say, it's going to be all right. I've overcome. It's as if it's already done and it's all over but the shouting. I've overcome. And it's interesting when you look at the word overcome, it's only used here in the Gospel of John, but in the letters of John in the book of Revelation, it's used something like 54 times that Jesus overcame. That was his mission. That was what he did. That was the process. The high priestly prayer it, it itself is interesting because the first part, Jesus prays for himself. The second part, which which. Uh, Scott will get to next week. He prays for the disciples. And the third part, he actually prays for you and I, which is intriguing to get to. The, the second content part or process part I want to touch on is, is, is he said, Father, the hour has come. Just as we already have seen four times previously, he said, it's not time yet. It's not time. The hour has not yet come. Now the hour has come. And then and one chapter later, on the cross, he will say, it is finished. The hour has come, 
the hour in terms of all that God has put into this, this moment in history and this time. As a military planner, one of the things that we worked hard on is, is having to plan to create conditions that where success and victory could be achieved. Jesus was setting up conditions for victory to be achieved, certain conditions. And part of how I read this is that he's reporting back to the Father to say, sir, everything's ready. All systems are go for Operation Rescue the World. It's, it's time for, for the next step. We, we've, we've accomplished everything that we're gonna do. I'm not actually sure that in the three years of Jesus' ministry that it had to be three years. It could have been two years, it could have been five years. He was working to achieve certain conditions that he orchestrated so that his death would be the pinnacle of pivoting people to a new understanding of who God was, why he was, and why Jesus was, and why that's such a big deal. His time had come. Two heavy content words, eternal life, which is tied directly to this word know, right in the middle that, that I highlighted in red there. And that's where we get this idea of experience. He, Jesus is pointing out to the Father, the time has come, the conditions are set for, for this reciprocal glory that has to happen because they know you. These ones that you have set aside for me and I've been with them and they know you. They, they don't know about you. They don't know more facts about you. They can't simply list the attributes of God or give you all 39 books in the Old Testament. That's not what this is about. It's about intimate knowledge as in Adam knew his wife and she had a son. The intimacy of relationship is what this word know is all about and that's, that's embedded in the idea of the quality of life that comes in the eternal kind of life. Much more that we could say there. And then, and then finally, this big, heavy impact word, glory. It's almost like we, we can't really understand the gospel. We can't really understand what Jesus is all about, what God's even all about, unless we understand this word glory. And, and, and I, I mean it, it's a heavy word. The actual Hebrew word for glory means heavy weight. Go to the next slide. Glory is used 33 times in, in, in John, and I'm just going to touch on these. And it's when I said that the takeaway was glory is the point of the story, is that God's glory is what this is all about. In eternity past, the Godhead met and said, how, do we, how can we possibly maximize the glory of this perfect person, Yahweh God? And in their wisdom, they said, we have to create beings who by their own free choice want to love God. And in doing that, God receives the most glory. And so at, at particular critical points in Israel's history, God, Yahweh God reminds the people that his glory is the point of the story that as his glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And those passages in the bottom from Isaiah is that we are made for his glory. That, that's why we exist. And if we don't get that, we don't get it. It isn't about maximizing our pleasure, our happiness. 
fact, there's a great expression that John Piper uses is, is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us. He, 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 he sees us in our glory when we are most satisfied in, re, in re, giving back to him the glory that he has. Let me, let me finish with a quick story about my own experience and this understanding of experience and enter and uh, we'll, we'll land the plane. Hopefully we won't come to a, too, too, brief, uh, too abrupt of a stop here. I came to faith at 17, somewhere between my junior, junior and senior year in high school. Um, my dad was in the Navy. Parents were divorced two years before that, probably from a lot of pressures from his career. And my coming to faith was, for me, a point-in-time experience. God had been doing some work in my life through FCA and a particular friend that I met in study hall. Is there any study hall thing? Is that a thing still? Study hall in, in high school who had been just a few months down the same road that I had been with divorced Navy parents, and he'd come to faith in Christ. And so I'm, I'm kind of tracking with my friend, and, and my heart is being stirred up, but it wasn't until I moved away that summer. The home life was terrible. Some uh, relatives in Southern California invited me to, to live with them that summer. And interestingly, they had had an experience from divorce in their family five years ago, of coming to faith and, and realizing the healing power of Christ. And I lived with them that summer and was regular in church. I had never attended church much before. And then one one night before Sunday, I'm thinking with joy about Sunday morning and, and all of the reality of who God was, Christ died for my sins. You too can have the abundant life that he promised. And I just said a prayer in my bed and it was the most transforming thing. And it was an event. It was a point in time, 21 July, 1971. I can remember that like it was yesterday. I went back home witness to everything that walked. I, I tried to tell my mom and her boyfriend and, and my older brother and my sister about Christ. I tried to tell my dad about Christ. My sister responded. But eventually, over the years, all of my family came to faith, at least a profession of faith. But my dad was a mystery to me because, um, because of my military career, his military career, we, we started tracking a little bit better uh, as my career took off. And uh, they were visiting us in Little Rock when we were stationed there, I remember clearly. And I just had this conviction that I had to lead him to the Lord. I had to you know, beat him over the head, whatever, was, whatever it would take. I, I had to lead him to the Lord. It was just that conviction. And I still remember uh, they were going to leave the next day and, and drive in. And we're, we're, I just have this picture of the off-ramp off next to the mall. I mean, I can still see it. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to convince my dad that he doesn't know Jesus, and he's got to know Jesus. And he was very uh, warm and appreciative, but he just said, more like, I'm not interested. And then, and then about a year later, we were still in Little Rock, and I get a phone call from my next-door neighbor at Baba College, Dan Peterson, and said, Eddie, you'll, you'll be interested to know that your parents started coming to my church. Somehow they had connected, small community up in, in Snohomish, Washington, 
somehow they had connected. And then some years later, we were visiting my dad and his, his wife, my stepmom, in, in their home. And I remember sitting at the table. We had, I think we had just come from church. And he's clearly engaged. He's clearly committed. And, and I remember asking my friend Dan that day to say, what happened? What ha I mean, I've, I witnessed him the whole time. And, and he never, he never, he, he looked at me and he said, I've experienced that some, for some it's a point in time. And for some it's a process. And so I asked my dad, when, when did you believe? You know that classic, you know, if you, if you were to die tonight, you know, do you know where you would go? He said, I, I don't know. I, I can't put a point in time like you can. I just know that I believe. And so, back to this idea of process and content. I don't know what comes first, the experience or the entering. I, I felt like almost like I entered by a statement of faith and then I experienced who God was and what he meant. I felt like maybe my dad more experienced and then at a point entered. But it's the same. It's the same end game. What about you? Is God warming your heart and awakening you to the desire to know him deeper and, and to investigate even what this eternal kind of life is all about? I think one of the best ways we could end is to realize that if he has called you, then just as the disciples, he has loved you and he will love you to the end. He loves you, and he will love you to the end. As we launch into our week of back to school, into the new content of the process of fall, let's be aware of our opportunities to enter and experience or experience and enter the fullness of all God is for us in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I just pray and thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for life in Christ. Thank you for the energy and enthusiasm that Scott, Olivia, and Mitchell, and Olivia bring to the reality of the family of God here at Journey Church. And I pray that we would continue to move on and in and up into the kingdom and into relationship with you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.